think that most useful non-technical skill is, is the ability to problem solve. It's, it's not technical at all. It should be ingrained as, as an engineer. Problem solving comes first. Bashi presents The Means of Production, a podcast about what it really takes to build, maintain, and scale the processes that produce the physical products that power our world. Every episode, we ask a manufacturing expert to walk us through the nuts and bolts of how they do their job. We explore how and why they got into manufacturing, dive deep into the hardest problems they've solved on production lines, and discuss their thoughts on what's broken in manufacturing today and how those things can be fixed. This podcast is hosted by me, Siddhit Sangvi, Pashi's US operations lead and former assembly engineer at Ford Motor Company. If you're a part of the manufacturing world and you're interested in being a guest on the means of production, email me at siddhith at pashi.com. That's S-I-D-D-H-I-T at P-A-S-H-I dot com. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of The Means of Production. With me today is my friend and former colleague, Zach Westhoff, Manufacturing Engineer for Powertrain Engineering at Ford Motor Company. Welcome, Zach. Thank you. Zach was on my team with Powertrain Assembly Line Design, Build, and Commission for the Livonia Transmission Plant, and we had some, some good times together solving their the Ford uh, 10-speed transmission launch, and I learned a lot from Zach, and I saw him work on a lot of stuff, and we're going to talk about all that, but before all of that, Zach is going to just read out this uh, quick disclaimer. All right, so I work for Ford Motor Company, but this is my own opinion and not the opinion of Ford Motor Company. I want to clarify that I'm not a spokesperson for Ford Motor Company, official or otherwise. All right. Zach, firstly... What is going on with you? How are things in these crazy times? How is your family? How is work? How is everything? Yeah, so I'll start with the family because that's kind of how you rolled it out. My my wife, bless her heart, she's she's taken a lot of initiative to to take on the role of of principal, I guess, of our of our household. And bless her heart, she's done a she's done a good job of of taking the kids under her wing. Including the education herself, so we're we're in a, we're homeschooling our our two kids and the the five year old Brielle. Well, gonna be five here pretty soon. The girl's so dang fast. Ari's ten, Bree's five, and she's homeschooling them now. And I have to attend work meetings at home and try to take care of business too as we work from home. Sometimes I go into the plant, but I mean it's it's a big shift from not being there every day to to like once or maybe bi-weekly kind of going in and checking in on stuff that's that's happening but the family's doing good kids are healthy i have not contracted covid for some damn reason (laughs) (laughs) wife's been the wife's not contracted either we've had some close calls i'm alive been i've been in for testing twice my wife went in for her first test last week and yeah, we still haven't contracted it. The kids definitely have it because they're they're homeschooled. However, they still get to like meet up with a bunch of kids that have had it or have played together with them. And yeah, it's it's 
a lot of people are scared in today's world and I'm not, I'm not scared at all. In fact, from the get go, I was, I was pretty adamant about like, let's just get this. I, I'd rather just get it and get over with it <laughs> kind of opinion. Cause then you build up the antibodies or, or you die. Yeah. Right. So like I, I wasn't scared from the beginning. In fact, I going into it, I thought I had it early on back in October, the year before all this started. And, and I really wasn't scared to contract it. Like I, I even stepped up to the plate for, um, to, to start making face masks and launch the two lines for the face mask manufacturing. And yeah, I wasn't, wasn't at all affected by it. I didn't end up sitting at home, not, not doing nothing. I was constantly busy throughout the whole pandemic. It's like nonstop. So that's a good segue like into work. <clears throat> so from there, because I took initiative and took a step up and powertrain just keeps growing. Complexities keep growing. Um, there, there was a need for a, another lead engineer and one of the, one of the other lead, lead engineers wanted to take a step down. So it wasn't Marianne. It was, it was Paul. So <clears throat> as Paul stepped down, Marianne took his place down at Cherville, which opened up a position on phase one. And, and then I got dutifully willed that, that program. So that's, that's, taken off with a, a new derivative of 10R100 and that's going to launch later on this year and hopefully we'll be meeting our job one date in pretty much a year from now, which is March. Uh, so a lot of things going on and uh, f firstly, homeschooling has gained a lot of traction. There is, uh, there is a lot of great points uh, to it, a lot of advantages and, and yeah, th th there is uh, there are opinions for and against, you know, the conditions at school or what they teach and what they don't teach. And I think it's up to every family to to know what they want. And and this is like happens to be the time when you act on on whatever you think is best. So so it's oh, that yeah, kind of a time. And and yeah, I'd, I'd like to also commend uh, your wife. And, and I believe you mentioned her name is Sharon. Uh, Sharon, is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, you didn't get it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, yeah, take... mistress's name now. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, homeschooling two kids is is a full time job. It's it's very hard. It's has to be you know structured in some form at least, and there has to be some discipline. So, yeah, that's very commendable. And also, the lead engineer is is a big role because at that point you're you're essentially tasked to not just solve technical problems but but to essentially be like the project manager of this whole thing right so so again congratulations and all the best for for job one 10r has been a, a great product for ford and uh that's why it keeps growing you know that's why there are so many variants and yeah let's let's uh move on to even more interesting stuff that you've done, Zach. And by that, I um, mean I got some, I got all some the problems. Bottle there. I, let's let's talk a little bit more because as as an engineer, your your needs really need to concern essentially not only with non technical issues. And I see how the how the basis of of your questions are, are have a have a topological approach. You know about technical and non technical issues. 
And I'm just trying to, you know, reflect on my thoughts, basically aimed on identifying those, you know, and it, I, I honestly believe this, this should be included in some of the educational forms <clears throat> such that, you know, and, and trying to decipher case in point that as an engineer, you, you know, you do need to concern yourself with non-technical issues, mostly because, you know, unlike a scientist, essentially, who, who can work individually and he generally just has concern for himself and his lab and his research issues. But where that differs, you know, engineers, we, we essentially have to work as a team. And as a team, an engineer needs to be, you know, actively communicating. And, and that team is usually comprised, such as myself as an engineer, uh, a, somebody who's a technician and a craftsman or skilled trades and, you know, essentially engineers are, have the role of, of being a coordinator. So pretty much technical, so technical issues, usually we, we invite as a, as a motivation and, you know, as, as those lie, this, as such motivation, you know, with leadership and, and family issues would, would definitely come to the engineer as, as needs to arrest such matters so as to be effective and efficient. And I think that most useful non-technical skill is, is the ability to problem solve. It's, it's not technical at all. It should be ingrained as, as an engineer. Problem solving comes first. <laughs> you know, we're always taught that. And, and such that problem solving uses our, our logic and, and analytical thinking all engineers essentially need to be problem solvers. And this is, this is technical and not really per, per se as people problems, but it usually requires a, a different approach. Such as an engineer, you need to be able to clearly identify and define the, the problem and quickly, you know, quickly think of possible solutions, follow a, a like like a step-by-step -step approach to identify and present evidence and analyze and analyze the results that you get choose essentially the best solution but there there are many complex problems in in every engineering role that that essentially needs needs approach like this this is should should be ingrained in in everybody <laughs> if they're going to take on the engineering role and such that I've, I've used it many times throughout my career. That's that's a super interesting take. I, and the way the, the reason it's interesting is firstly, I, I heard this take for the first time in the sense that, you know, why are we even calling this technical or non-technical? Problem solving is just like a like a skill in itself and it's an attitude and it's a, it's a way of looking at things. And I'd say that every... Every problem solver may not be an engineer, but every engineer should be a problem solver. It's kind of where you're getting at. And that is something that, that every person should be able to kind of have it in their brain to activate when they face such certain things and not be like, oh, I, I can't solve this because, you know, I'm not I'm not the engineer. I'm the scientist or I'm, I'm something else or right. whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a very good take, Zach. And how... Take, take this yeah. for example. Sure. 
Number one, I, I think this should be an absolute requirement. I think I stated that. And I think it this this requirement should go up the hierarchy. I mean, all the way to and not be confined to essentially like an engineering position. So let me give you like a real life example. It's not really manufacturing based, but in, in, <clears throat> just kind of think of this. It's kind of like a broad scope, right? An engineer in a ship can only be a chief engineer, but he can never be a captain. Right. But the captain needs to be a problem solver as well. Bingo. That's why it needs to go up the hierarchy. <laughs> I, I think that's awesome because sometimes many people who, who might be at the top of the hierarchy might hire other people who solve you know problems for them. And, and maybe that's not right. Maybe they should be on the top because they solve problems, right? That is that is how it should be, and and for the most part, you know, many CEOs are like that. But sometimes there are many leaders in many companies who are not like that, and and that's that's where I, I guess it needs to improve. Yeah, that's a great uh, real life example, and I like the ship analogy as well. It it puts it into good perspective. So yeah. yeah, okay. So you've spoken about problem solving. How do it? Was there something that you just started inculcating in yourself? just because of the environment you grew up with or was it your parents how and, and it kind of segues into the first question which is how did you get into the field in the first place right and i and because you mentioned problem solving i'm i'm interested to know why you became what you became because it looks like this attitude or this this want to be a problem solver has a huge role to play in it and i, I want to kind of know how how this all came about and it's surprising that we never talked about that. <laughs> well, just to clarify, I like to solve problems when it deals with like material things, you know, things that are, that are there. I, I can't solve psychological problems between like me and my, any of my ex-girlfriends just to lay that out. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, as far as like how I got in my role, <clears throat> I've always dealt with construction and, and it was kind of like, I always thought Jesus, you know, I always knew Jesus was a carpenter. For some reason, I, I felt this urge to, to work with materials like man-made materials and build things. I still do. In fact, I've, I've got this huge desk project that I'm working on right now. Since I'm an engineer and have previous construction knowledge, I'll probably way, way overbuild it. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's it's ridiculous, man. It's it's this huge L-shaped live edge desk with like a steel frame underneath of it. I'm gonna need a, a cr crane to probably rig it into my my office. But oh my um, god, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty elaborate. But yeah, let's get on the topic of of how I got into my role. As a kid, like I always, I always would tinker with things, and I always would essentially kind of mess with with issues and, and and try to see where you know this toy's not working today why the hell is it not working well let's take it apart and figure it out so you know at a young age i always tried to figure out try to problem solve and as a young kid everything everything becomes a technical problem 
you know, the non-technical problems was trying to pacify your mom screaming at you while you're not in here eating dinner when it's ready. There was, there was like an undying urge as a kid just to either blow stuff up or take stuff apart. You know, how's it going to fail? <laughs> right, right. So as I get into that, I, I always, you know, projects grew. They grew from, you know, slot car tracks to uh, rubber band guns to slingshots. You know, the elastic cables or the elastic cordage on your slingshots not working, so... My wife's a nurse, or, or my mom's a nurse, so, you know, she had tourniquets and fashioned things together, make a make a slingshot, which turned into, like, a grand old project, and you end up making something that ends up breaking a window eventually, and then you get trouble for it. That's a non-technical problem <laughs> at that point. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I it always grew, and, and I always liked you know, cutting things, making things. So that, that kind of led to a role of, of, of me in a, in an engineering degree per se by, you know, having, having that, that grasp of reality in like 2008 when the economy tanks and, you know, you, you go back to your roots and you try to figure out what am I good at? And, you know, you, you don't have a job. You're, well, I need to go to college. What the hell am I going to do? You know, I, I, I dropped out of high school and didn't know what the heck I was going to do with my life. But at that point I was, I was operating heavy equipment and moving dirt and, you know, building houses and doing commercial construction and, you know, the, a light switch flickered on. And I said, well, if you're going to, you're going to aim for the walls, you may as well make it something worthwhile. And, you know, find something that's going to get you a job on the back end after you get out of college to at least pay for what you're going to build up in student loan debt. You know, what's a good, I I didn't want to be a doctor. We'll put it that way. Cause I mean, I I could have probably been a surgeon, but you know, going back to my roots as a kid, wanting to blow things up or take things apart. It didn't sound like a good idea. So (laughs) the whole doctor (laughs) role essentially, yeah. Battlefield doctor, maybe. Um, so yeah, it. I I ended up in an engineering degree, and I was so enthralled with it and so excited, and it just came naturally to me. And a lot of the problems that I had solved in my previous adventures with with construction or or engineering, I didn't realize I was doing it at the time in construction. But you know, we'd have inspectors building inspectors and certain codes and reason for those codes. And I never really understood why. <clears throat> and as soon as I got an engineering degree and started taking classes on statics and dynamics and physics and, you know, differential equations and figuring out fluid power and, and things grew into, into quantum and then into, you know, heat transfer. And it just kept, kept getting deeper and deeper until I think I gave up. Finally, in my college profession, I got to, you know, master's level courses and optimal control and estimation. And I realized, you know, I pretty much got the the hang of eigenvalues and eigenvectors, but I never really snapped onto like electronics and and controls theory as much. So I suck at at programming. I can do it, but I'll be... uh, slow and non-efficient at it. So that pretty much ended up 
you know, and, and I graduated with the uh, with the bachelor's, and, and I wasn't surprised that, you know, I showed such astute quality and and did such a good job in in, in uh, one of my manufacturing courses that I actually was hired by the school to to work as 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 like an improv professor really for for the on-site prototype shop that we had. So I would, I was teaching, you know, entry level undergrad students, 300 level courses in, in machine tool technology and, you know, why you don't run a lathe bit backwards <laughs> and, you know, teaching them how to measure samples and, and make things. And I ended up helping out on a lot of uh, PhD student projects that, that dealt with with their thesis and and I, I learned a lot that way too and solar ovens I, I did a lot of things in that college that that actually kind of made me want to stay and it was such a good environment and then you know after I got hired it it, it also grew into a, a race car program and and I ended up helping out with uh the students on the FSAE projects and ended up going to multiple, multiple competitions where these, where the school was competing with a, with a race car that I essentially helped build and taught quite a few students how to, how to weld and, and make certain things that they needed for the race car and try to kind of help them get their independence instead of depending upon somebody, get them the knowledge to know how to make something so when they're by themselves or with another colleague at you know like midnight or one o'clock in the morning they're 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 safe and they're not doing things wrong or incorrectly they're not going to get hurt because there were times at two three in the morning where in that in that race car shop that the, that the university had they were running machine tools and tired and caffeinated or who knows if they went out to eat dinner and had a couple of beers and were coming back but at, at one of the competitions that I went to, I got an email that from, from one of the professors that Ford was going to be on site doing some recruiting. And I don't know if you met. Did you ever meet Mario Caro? He's the guy that hired me. Yeah. I, I ended up meeting Mario Caro. <laughs> lovely, lovely Mar person and, and just a guy who knows how to spot people. So for yeah. sure. And I, I talked to him and and him and, let's see, another person with Ford. I, 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 her name's on the top of my tongue, but I can't say it right now. But they ended up having a like a like like an interview with me on site. This was in Lincoln, Nebraska at one of the competitions. And it was, it was the year after I graduated. Like, I ended up getting dragged to another competition because I helped the kids compete and, and build the race car the year prior. So as my manufacturing role, I, I was on site pretty much for critical support in case something bad happens. So it was like a vacation for me. I got to just kind of kick back, relax, watch all the kids suffer through what I went through the year prior and watch them compete, kind of give some pointers and, and help them out where they where they needed. And if anything critical came up, I was on site to address it and make, to have the mechanical knowledge to get things fixed and get them back in the game kind of like a like a sports medic really but for a race car but 
that, that following year, I mean, I, I met with Mario. So if I didn't stick around, if I wasn't hired by the university to do the things I do, I, I would have never ended up at, at Ford Motor Company. And, you know, it, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you right now. That is uh, that is so amazing and coincidental because he hired me in in the most serendipitous like you know situations as well. But that's for another time. But I'm glad that we have that uh, connection with Mario in common. And I I see how you you went into the engineering field having you know doing construction and taking things apart like from from a young age and and th- you know this stuff doesn't come naturally to everyone. A lot, a lot of people think they have to be engineers and they struggle through subjects and, you know, just because they can be engineers. But but it's it's really great that that some people can just, you know, do it naturally. And all of the things you mentioned, you know, like teaching other kids and becoming like a like a teaching assistant or an improv professor and, and helping people with their thesis. That's that all shows that you genuinely like enjoy it above and beyond just getting a job so that's true true learning and and i wish it on every child to to have true learning and yeah for for me it was uh, technical drawing like even in high school I, I never studied for technical drawing i just showed up and i just knew it i, I loved making 3d diagrams or isometric you know isometric diagrams i i just knew all of that naturally and just like you i i just stayed away from the electrical part and the controls part yeah so yeah i i i completely see that transformation and and that journey and and you're for the audiences you know i you may have forgotten and i certainly forgot i certainly forgot my my high school stuff but it looks like zach did not but an eigenvector is a vector that does not change direction in a transformation so i'll put a link to it in the show notes and zach could you clarify for the audience what fsa is so fsa is is a is a program with most accredited universities where the students are join as a as a four-year degree program and they right off the bat would have to be committed to FSA and once you sign up for that first class that first semester you're committed for the four years um, most of the universities adopt that that four-year program where and I want to say most accredited universities and there's something like 300 universities that, that compete in this. Some of them compete in Lincoln. Some of them compete in Michigan. But moreover, what they do is they start at a at a freshman level teaching, you know, your basics of, of you know, how, how race cars perform in the specific design requirements. And they, they go through and they also are in the team meetings. And they start out almost as like what we would say in the industry as, as a – as like an intern, um, they're not really, really deep involved in in doing any of the computations. They can be if they're knowledgeable enough. Uh, they may be hands on and help them build something. They will be hands on and helps helping set up track days or, or practice days. And but it's a four year degree program where you go through and you take courses that specifically apply to what would tailor you as a, as an automotive manufacturer or even get you in a program that could send you overseas and you'd end up on an F1 team or even on a NASCAR team. Um, 
I didn't know what the heck I was going to do by the time I got to the end of this. So I didn't know I was going to end up working for Ford Motor Company. But what's interesting about University of New Mexico, where I've got my degree from, is they do it as a two-year degree. And when I graduated, we were fourth in the world. No, tenth in the world and fourth in the nation. So we were pretty high up. And for a two-year degree program, you know, where kids are getting in one year, kind of seeing it, getting their feelers out. They join as a, as a, as a, as a junior and they, they see that, that first bit of the program, they'll, they'll realize right away if they want it or they don't. So it's not like, it's not real selective. You can sign up for it, but it's, it's required that you meet with the professor before you join. And, and he really kind of vets you and, and understands the reasoning why you want to join. My meeting with him was, you know, I had a lot of extensive manufacturing background knowledge in, in welding and machining from the get-go as, as well as I, I thought I'd be useful. So that's how I ended up there. I didn't really think it was going to turn into a, a future profession as a lead engineer for Ford Motor Company, but it, that's, that's what I ended up as. But these kids spend four spend at least two years designing, engineering, designing, building, and racing a race car. So when you break that down, I, I said four keywords there. You engineer it first, you validate your results, you design it, and then you build it, which takes a year, and then you race it that final year. We would do it in two years. So it was quick. It was like a fast track program at, at New Mexico. And the fact that we were, that we were doing it in two compared to four was, was astounding. And we were still, you know, pretty high up in the ranks. So last time I checked, we were second. They placed pretty high at the, at the race last year. Every now and then I go back and check, you know, what race results were like every other year. And yeah, the kids are doing good, man. I, Dr. John Russell was the was the professor, and he was pretty long in the tooth and getting pretty old when I was in the program. And he's still going at it, man. He's still going strong. So, wow. to him. Wow. Yeah, sounds like a very grueling and uh, and uh, you know directed co- you know course. And I just you know looked it up, and FSAE is you know Formula SAE, and I, I, I'm familiar with SAE as as uh, many of you in the audience might be the Society of Automotive Engineers, but they just refer to themselves as SAE, and I, I can see how this would train them for for very automotive related. Uh, work and yeah it's uh, completely fitting that you're in ford motor company and and building transmissions for for mustangs so (laughs) with that being said (laughs) well yeah yeah you know what they are they are not very exciting looking but uh, they are some of the most useful vehicles on the road especially in these times so absolutely they are yep they are a lifeline so zach do you want to dive straight into like your technical challenge and non-technical challenge or is there something else on your mind that that you have about your journey or what would you like to do now man okay so what has been a technical challenge that you faced and this could be like not just one day or like you know it could be just a tough month or a week or something and how did you face it you know just just walk us through like a day in the life of zach westoff 
<laughs> so I'll start with the first one on top of my head since I just kind of talked about FSA. That's to go back to my to my validation period within FSA. We we had a race car built. We knew the parameters. We knew the we knew like the parameters of what the curb weight was going to be, and we knew what tires we gonna, we were going to select. And race car dynamics is is something that's pretty grueling. You you pretty much set the bar where you want to perform at. And when I set the bar, when I say set the bar, you're talking about multiple variables of of speed and downforce and and lateral and longitudinal acceleration. How you want to how you want the car to perform. It's like the benchmarks for your design. So up front, you set these values, and th- there's a process of validation for everything that you want to choose for this. And when you get down into it. Everything in that car relies on the performance of your tires. Like you wouldn't really think about it. You're like it, and I and I work in the auto. Really? Yeah, and wow. I really I work in the automotive sector, and and most people don't think about you know the the kind of tire they're going to put in their car. Like, do you actually think about it when you're going to put tires on the wife's car? You're going to look at the coefficients of friction. I mean, no, no, I, I just get all weather tires and just slap them on after I get a discount from from somebody on the tire. So, yeah, I must be the the worst offender of uh, of all of those people in in your eyes. So, oh yeah, but yeah, everything in in the performance of a vehicle, like like, like comes down to the tires. And I, I don't know if it was the professor or not. Like the, this is pretty technical, and pretty technical to the point of I still remember it to this day and we were using MATLAB and we were running like like heavy heavy calculations based off of what the input values are off of our race car and what we desired our output values to be and when I say input values I'm talking you know certain speed requirements acceleration longitudinal acceleration you know kind of breaking those down um lateral acceleration and just just the performance of of how we want it to perform and all this is rooted into like one specific equation and there's a there's a guy called hans b pajeka and you wouldn't believe it but he, like he was born in like I think 1934 and he was an expert in in vehicle systems dynamics it's particularly tire dynamics which was like the field of his expertise but he developed a series of tire design models that that lasted over like 20 years and they were so like undefined and really really notch that they were kind of called like the magic formula like the like quotations magic formula wow because there was like no real physical basis for for the structure of how the equations were chosen but they still fit a wide variety of tire constructions today and you're talking like 19 i think he was born 1934 I don't know when he passed away, but I, I, I would assume he 
like he probably passed away in like the last four or five years because no one lives that long. But like it, like you you talk about they they fit a wide variety of of tire constrictions between keep in mind 30 1934 and like the tires operating conditions so each of these equations were were characterized by like 10 to 20 coefficients it was huge that pretty much defined like how a tire made contact with its surface and, and it pretty much defined like based off the, the experimental data that, that you had calculated for the race car performance, such as like camber angle and slip angle. And like you talk about technical, <laughs> you start getting into like vehicle dynamics and there's so many inputs and outputs that are, that are derived off of that. And it, it's kind of interesting because the Pajeka tire formulas are actually widely used in professional race car vehicle dynamics and to be honest like they're even using race car games and they're damn accurate dude that is that is like a very very what an interesting piece of history over there that this guy doesn't have like anything that people think is is like a structured formula or a derivation or something but it seems to hold up against the test of time and everyone's is everyone's using it in in everything from like kid races to like professional racing so so this must be quite a character and quite a quite a genius at that yeah there was a there was a whole semester of our fsa program pretty much based off of modeling how our vehicle is going to perform and it it all came down to how the tires were going to perform and from there you you build the car off of that so it's kind of like backwards engineering right usually you're you're given your inputs and then you you get you find out your outputs but there was a lot of derivation that we did on using like these using like the magic formulas that essentially would would quantify how our how our race car is going to perform wow and for the audience the camber angle is like the angle that the vertical axis of the tire makes when it is not perfectly at 90 degrees so that's your camber angle and it probably is something you can see when it's going over uneven terrain and it's used to design steering and suspension even in like sharp corners too like camber angles a big thing because like you can see on some cars when you drive down the road like their their tires are tilted in like their wheels are tilted in but when you think about that that setup's kind of needed when you start taking a corner really hard for nascar it's easy i mean they're always turning left right they're not turning left and right (laughs) right 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 so you set up everything for for I, i think it's like either a i think it's a positive camber and like your your tire will actually roll up under that wheel and if you have that that wheel actually leaning out a little bit it helps the the contact patch actually grab on a little bit better as your suspension compresses and your spring rates right your air pressure your tires is perfect and the tire compound most of all is going to be able to hold your uh hold your car on that on that corner yeah yeah i can i can imagine it in my head what you what you're saying Correct. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I was pretty technical in school, man. Like, this was, this is like a good, man, I'd say like a good two, two month project where like you're, you're looking at your, at your design and you're going back and you're, you're validating, you know, using other systems like car simulator or, or atoms to, to find out what your, what your camber angles are. And, and you'd provide that as an input. And MATLAB was a pretty versatile tool because you could you could draw a track, like you could draw a track on, on MATLAB, and you could use uh, Simulink to to essentially run the program to give you your outputs. And if it was unsolvable, you knew that one of the values was diverging. One of your eigenvalues was diverging at that point, so you'd have to go back and find out, you know. All right, what's the problem? Where was my, you know, why was my eigenvalue diverging? What was the input that caused us to do that? And then that's that's kind of the validation problem, uh, premise of, of the whole program, like or, or the whole the whole like physical versus simulated model, right? That you're trying to validate. And within Ford Motor Company, we do that a lot. You know, they'll they'll go through and they'll build something, they'll validate it. And then we usually call them capability studies or gauge studies in the manufacturing side. But there, there is a bigger picture where they, they do it with vehicles too. So, No, very, very, very interesting, Zach. And I loved how you brought it back to what you do on the line with capability. So again, for our audience, like capability, the way at least I remember it at Ford, you know, was mainly, you know, these two main metrics, which was CP and CPK, which stood for capability and, and the performance and capability essentially meant that you were in, in within your spec limits and your, your, your process limits were less than your specification limits and the performance decided how centered they were you know if they were too close to a specification limit you were likely to to fail during some kind of abnormality so you'd rather stay as centered as you could kind of like a car going into a garage right you you want to be centered and you want to fit in the garage so uh, what cars you have in the garage plus how many cars you have in the garage and (laughs) and you know trust zach to to make it a a little more technical than we can handle but uh, and and what zach was saying was was expanding all of those metrics to a much bigger picture with every part of vehicle chassis and and the suspension and stuff like that and very interesting uh, Zach. Oh, thanks. So, like uh, another technical problem that I had was, yeah, there was a there was a lot of a lot of discussion on on the hybrid. Like I'm pretty sure you've seen like that, like the F one fifty electric down in Texas powering homes and keeping right. appliances alive when people were down in power. <laughs> so that was like a, a a little mini hooray moment for for me and Brandon, but. I initially like launched and ran off the the MHT portion of the whole ten speed program, and like you wouldn't believe how difficult it was to to actually get that that piece of equipment integrated and into the front of a of a ten speed transmission. Like there was there was a lot of things at play and, and a lot of things that that made people say it's not possible from the get-go like i think brandon just folded on it i think he was so busy brandon was was my main counterpart 
as he was he was the lead engineer and I think he delegated on the 10R MHT portion and just handed it to me because he was so busy and wrapped up with um, installation and runoff and, and processing payments and doing all the other lead, lead engineering roles on the base 10R program that like he didn't want to take it on. And I don't, you know, he didn't have the time to meet with the product engineers and really go through design reviews that that they were kicking off with tier two suppliers for components at this time. And, you know, this, this was a big thing. Like it, they were basically putting an e-motor on the, on the front of a transmission. And, you know, from the get go, I, I talked to the cost study originator, Jeff Hinkle and Jeff Hinkle was another colleague of mine that did the, did the vignette study up front. And he didn't really dig into the details too deep. So I kind of poked his brain a little bit and found out, you know, who did he communicate with? And one person he missed was our, our robot programmer, Dave Gravel. And Dave Gravel within Ford, Ford Motor Company was anything and all things robotic at the time within powertrain manufacturing. Yeah, even even I know that name is he's synonymous with, with all the robotics. So, yeah. Yeah, he's working at ABB now as a, as a technical specialist. But Dave was like, like his response to MHT was like, no way in hell. And, you know, for most people, the, the technical specialist is saying, you can't do this. I kind of like seen it as like a welcome invitation. I was like, challenge me. <laughs> like, I don't hey. think you understand, you know, there's, there's certain things that can be done, but I see the path forward and there's always ways to figure something out challenge accepted yeah exactly so i took it as like not really like as a vendetta but but motivation to kind of take a technical expert and prove him wrong it, you know just to kind of say you know i beat you <laughs> <laughs> you know not really like put a notch in a belt but but kind of like you know, try to get under his radar and be like, you know, you said this was impossible, but I mean, it happened. You know, not really ego building. I mean, I wasn't like self-centered at the time. I was just like, I, I could see how this will work, you know? So, like Dave was in, Dave was vetted and he was involved in the whole product design process. And it always came down to stacks with him. Like, I don't know what the big deal was with stacks. And, and I, I, I do understand that as you start your engagement sequence, there's, there's some, there's some analytical stacks that we do because you'll have multiple engagements as you install a torque converter to transmission and it mates to a shaft. And there's, there's five different layers of like engagements that you need to have before that to, before that torque converter is fully seated. And there's like, there's like a damper inside and, and a turbine wheel. And, and then there's like a, another secondary turbine wheel that, that spins with the, with the fluid motion as it's, as it's going through it. And then there's a seal and then there's also a pump drive at the bottom. And for some reason, Dave didn't see this as just like installing a torque converter. He's seen it as something like on a grander scale. And by the time that I actually looked at it, I was, 
And I was like, you know, if we put the, this module in, it's going to be just like installing a torque converter. I don't see what the big deal is. So, you know, you'll have another engagement at the very, very, very bottom where you seat it to the case. And, and like the two cases mate together and the torque converter is encapsulated inside of it. So I, I set off in motion and, and decided to do this. And I spent like a good, I'd say six or seven months with the product team from the get go. I think, Bert, I think Sid, you were even working for us at that time, but I think you were working with Marianne. I was I, I was helping you with uh, with MHT, but that was after you finished a lot of the the technical work up that had to be done up front. And I remember you being very involved with uh, with product, right? You 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 were doing a lot of the stuff that you know happens like before we actually start on something like this, uh, and that's a testament to how involved you were willing to be with with actually the product and the and the design of that component. So I think you played an instrumental role there, and I. I could see you in those in those meetings and yeah I think I came in when we were already doing the validations you're right but you know just to get back to one of the points you made I, I think people who as children you know like to take things apart and see how it works you know they aren't taking up a challenge for ego they simply can't accept that unless I take this apart I won't know if it's actually impossible and I love that attitude because I didn't really have that attitude, but I, I can see that problem solvers need to see it themselves and, and, you know, verify the truth themselves and see, let me take it apart. Let me go back to the basics. And is it really impossible? Right. So I don't think you're right. I, I don't think it was anything to do with, you know, beating someone or, or whatever. I think, think that was perfect. No, no, I would have never beat Dave. Dave would have beat me all the time. <laughs> And that too, yeah. <laughs> Dave is a very smart guy. He taught me quite a bit about robotics, and I still value him. He's a great guy. Man, I, I wish we still had him here. You know, he's off to bigger and better things. But anyways, from, from the get-go, you know, back to the whole Dave Gravel comment. Like we, we, I got this thing in a design down to, you know, working with the, working with the PD guys. And, and to be honest, like Ford Motor Company contracted it out. Which was the best thing in the world from the, from the beginning because you had contractors. You didn't have product design guys that would basically adhere to design rules. And, you know, you wouldn't hear no as an answer. You're like, we absolutely need this from the beginning. Otherwise, this is like a no-go. And you're talking like M1 stages, like the very, very first model of the transmission as it's being developed within, you know, the Ford data system for 3D models. Like, I, manufacturing was involved from the very beginning. And I think that's paramount in, in the fact that, you know, it wasn't just thrown over the wall and like a cost study, and then we have to scramble to go figure out the cost that's going to take to assemble it, figure out solutions to it. We were vetted from the very beginning. And we had input for, from the very beginning. And it, it's a new design. So, you know, very important that whoever is building something for you is involved from the very beginning of its design. You know, that first shovel full of dirt, it needs, you know, you got to have engineering and manufacturing on site to, to weigh into how things are going to happen. You know, you're going to hit roadblocks along the way. You're going to have people that say, you know, no way in hell is this going to work. Um, but it's not until you actually 
like get down to that to that turnkey moment of where you're building the part for the first time and you know it'll happen as long as you've done your upfront research and you know that you need this much material or this this much of a distance between your engagements and and you've installed something like it similar to it like your your road's already paid for you all you gotta do is take the risk and and drive down the road and if you run into a problem you're an engineer this goes back to like my first statement technical solutions are, are pretty much easy it's the non-technical solutions which is active communication and you know working with colleagues and pacifying those around you when you offend them those are the hard things to get over technical is easy at this point i can see how that plays out in a, in a large company and and for the you know for the audience what zach is saying is is the nuts and bolts of launching a new product uh, it's that fuzzy line between product and and manufacturing and engineering a lot of the time the communication tends to be like like a major major problem so oh, I, yeah. i completely get <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying everybody's running around like on fire no <laughs> yeah Yeah, thanks for that case uh, Zach. I I think it was very interesting and it was it was Ford's uh, one of Ford's uh, first offerings, you know, to the market with the hybrid and congratulations. I that truck and the whole campaign and the whole product had a very good effect on its outlook for for future products. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I actually ended up over at the vehicle plant in Chicago and did a did a week stint over there to help them out with launch and there were some issues with decking transmissions to engines and There was another guy by the name of Mike Check that was specifically responsible with like the first kind of offline assembly where they deck the engine of the transmission. That's before they that's when they assemble the engine to the actual like the powertrain components, the engine and the transmission, and then they'll they'll also bolt on the the subframe assembly, which at a later point further down the line gets gets raised up and made it to the to the body assembly of like a explorer so that's what the mht went in first and it was pretty interesting to see that and yeah the main issue with the line it was like a typical torque converter has like some bolt studs on the front of it and those made up to a like a long re- like a large gear in the back of the engine like a flex plate and typically there's there's like six or four bolts that hold that torque converter to the flex plate or in some instances there'd be like a like a flywheel damper or something to mitigate the vibration between the crankshaft of the engine and the transmission but if you don't get the picture you, like you could google it but but yeah like there was nothing for them to grab onto like typically if there's like a torque converter there they can spin the torque converter and see where the the hole is at and line up a stud with it and bring the engine and transmission together and they come together pretty easily on the front of the MHT there there's like a small little spline shaft and about a about an inch and an eighth inch and a quarter in diameter and there's when you're bringing the engine and transmission together you can't you can't reach in there and line it so we ended up making like this male and female type splined tool that would mate to the transmission and also mate to the engine and you can spin it with a long handle and 
as you bring the two together, they it would align the splines, and then you slide them both apart, pull the tool out, and then slide them back together, and everything was lined, and you could bolt the transmission to the back of the engine. I remember vaguely being involved in this, and I'm sure it would have pre- presented like a major ergonomic problem for for the guys at Chicago, and. It's it's glad that you thought on your feet and and designed this tool for them. Ergonomists in Chicago were a lot different than ergonomists in PTME. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I met with a couple of them. Like you were a pretty dang good ergonomist, but thank like, you. The, the the guys in Chicago were were nothing at, at your caliber. Like I, I think you could have actually made a pretty good uh, pretty good er- er- ergonomist in like a VOME plant somewhere, but. You know, you're off to bigger, better things. That's what everybody does. No, no. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I do find that uh, subject very, very interesting because uh, it, it's like the fusion between man and machine. And I think if you're, if you're a good problem solver, you, you'll figure out how to make it worthwhile for the man as well. And uh, yeah, those, uh, you know, for, for, for the benefit of the audience, I just want to say that, you know, vehicle plans, you, you might think that, you know, a lot of things are automated and a lot of things are very advanced, but for operators working on vehicle lines, especially, you know, more so than engine or transmission lines, this is still backbreaking work. It's, it's very hard work. It's at uh, certain angles where your back and neck, you know, might, might uh, hurt. And uh, there are many great solutions like ergo suits and stuff that have come up to solve this. So, so it's a very interesting field for, for all of those who find the subject interesting. It's, I'm going to put some links in the show notes. And, and you can look at it and see if this is something you'd like to go into for all the young people out there listening to this. Oh, I remember the Ergo suits. Those things were pretty cool. Super. I'll link to that too. I'm, I'm sure it's uh, out there in the web somewhere. Cool, Zach. How, how about, how, was that your non-technical answer or was that, is there another problem that you face that you can share with us? Oh, non-technical? Yeah, I can share some with that. I had a, like, just talk about simple. Like, I didn't try to dumb it down for this, but this was, like, a long, enduring, like, year and a half process. And most of the transmissions have some sort of a vent assembly on the top. Because you've got, you've got gears rotating inside of an aluminum case. It's going to create heat as it warms up. And the, the air expands and the air has to go somewhere. So, every vehicle has has a transmission vent like it even your engines have them and it's meant to allow air to escape otherwise you're you'll end up pushing a gasket out or or something will happen or you'll end up puking fluid out of of whatever is is warming up so they, they are vented to atmosphere but in transmission specifically like there's a there's a vent it's like a barbed fitting on the top of the transmission that we press into the top of the transmission and it's on the top to keep it away from the oil and We've been pressing in within 10R assembly. Like, when I say 10R, I mean like 10 speed. When Ford first came up with this, there we, we would put in a vent and it was put in with a press. And, and an operator walks into a workstation, press, puts this vent inside of a, the end of a press ram, and the transmission comes in on like an assembly pallet and it's, it's located off of that pallet. And then we also locate it inside the station and then the press comes in with the part inside of it and 
pretty much presses it in. It's it happens pretty rapidly, and you know the operator's nowhere near or not inside the station. He's standing outside of a light curtain. Light curtains are like light beams, that, and if somebody breaks it during when the automation's moving, it'll automatically stop. It's it's like hitting an e-stop button because we got to think of operator safety. But things happen differently between different assembly lines and. Some issues that you don't have on one assembly line, like, will pop up on another. And it, it was, it came down to like 10R140, which is the transmission that goes into like the Super Duty, like the F350s and 450s and, and above that Ford Motor Company makes. We were pressing in vent tubes and for the love of God, like, we couldn't get these things to seat. And our press system is only rated for like 12 kilonewtons. And we've got this thing maxed out. And we're actually overriding the overload limit on it up to like 14 kilonewtons. I guess till two kilonewtons above. It's like 800 pounds, 800 and, this be like 960 pounds of force more. If you start converting newtons to, to foot pounds and we could not get these things to seat. And I start diving into this thing and like the same tool is used between, you know, 10R80, which is a smaller platform that we were having no issues with pressing these things in, and 10R60, they were going in good too. There was like a little flicker there on 10R60, and I was trying to figure out what was going on, and well, when when the OEM, the original equipment manufacturer, made this equipment, he they ended up putting like a little compensation type device that was like held with springs, like it's supposed to center it. And there was no way to, to really have it return to center correctly. Um, other than the springs that were on all four corners. So if you imagine you push this thing to one side, the four spring forces would naturally bring it back to the center. And like, like those springs were springs over time decay as they're stretched. I don't think most most people know this, but like springs in their neutral state will stay at that spring level. Like they'll, they'll keep that same amount of force. But if you stretch a spring and you hold it there for long amounts of time, it, it'll essentially weaken over time. And I like to think of it as like, you know, people in a workforce that are seriously stressed for a long period of time. If you, stress that person for a long period of time they're going to eventually weaken or okay. give up yeah and these springs on all four corners were essentially kind of weakening over time and you had something that was moving and they were scared to make something that was rigid tooling and i told him i said if you get rid of that compensation device or the the compliance device that was allowing this to you know, axially move or, or deviate, it would, it'd be better. So it took like multiple studies and, you know, lots of promise programming and multiple things. And I, I kept just grilling them and grilling them, like, get rid of the springs on this thing and make it rigid and you'll be fine. And everybody was worried that they needed it from the get go. And I was like, no, make it rigid. So, I had somebody make like a like a hardened steel um, a fixture that I could bolt onto the bottom of it and just hold the vent tube and it started pressing in vent tubes like like nobody's business. 
and wow. it, it fixed it. But it was like a year, a year and a half of, of arguments and convincing people. Like you're talking non-technical, right? It's just a, a thought promise. Like people aren't confident in the ability of their, of their equipment to do certain things. And you start analyzing analytical stacks and you start aligning things. And, and don't get me wrong. Like we had an alignment fixture that was completely off for the station. And that's, I want to say the reason why this thing got drawn out is the alignment fixture didn't match the assembly part on the pallet. So every time they use the alignment fixture, it wouldn't line up with a part. And that caused a lot of worry beads. So I, I think that kind of drew it out. But as soon as it made the tooling rigid and we got the alignment fixture to line up with the part, like people were all in then. Like there was a light at the end of the tunnel. And as soon as we pers- pushed like the first four or five or six vent tubes in and they made it all the way in, people were like, yeah, this is the right direction. So sometimes you gotta, <laughs> sometimes you got to have the muster and, and willingness to like, not let people's decisions kind of skew your ideas and take initiative and validate what your thoughts are and don't be afraid to try it. And I think that'll actually produce the results that you're looking for. And if not, then you go back to that whole engineering mindset of problem solving and you know, what's the worst case you got to start all over, but you're still going to find a solution by the time that you get into it. Wow. I was actually shaking my legs uh, because this this had so many uh, great gems that I was I was just itching to to uh, you know come in and unmute myself and uh, I want to unpack that. Uh, yeah, I was, yeah. So I know I you you were talking and I didn't want to interrupt that, but there were so many good gems over there. Firstly, what I liked is uh, there is a lot of noise, and uh, I think you held on to the signal. And the noise was that if there is some paradigm that is widely accepted, it's very hard for anyone like me or anyone to objectively see if it's still the right paradigm. And, and I think that's what you did. You you questioned it and said that, yes, I know conventional wisdom would say that you want something that's elastic. But in this case, here are the reasons why it should be rigid. And you kept hammering at it for a year. That's That's a lot. And for the benefit of the audience, I... I want to say that, you know, while this was a very tiny part, because I'm, I'm familiar with the vent tube, and there's a funny incident with that. But the vent tube is a very tiny part. But as Zach mentioned, you know, it could lead to damage of the other parts of the transmission if it gets gets overheated. So people would be reluctant to change something that they think has, has worked in, in the normal sense. And here we have something that is completely different and it took you like a lot of trials and you had to prototype it and you had to try it and you had alignment issues, but you kept focusing on the signal and kind of ignored the noise. So I think that was the biggest takeaway here. And and, and the other takeaway is that what's the worst that's going to happen is you just have to start over. And for many people, that's that's like a very big deal where it shouldn't be a big deal. You just start over. Yeah, yeah you lost a lot of time, but think of how much you you learned that you wouldn't have otherwise learned. And you, you think that it's not useful, but later down the line, you'll remember this, right? You'll remember all of this and it will help you. So I'd say that those two things you said are very useful for any young person to hear that, you know, no experience is is really useless. It's going to teach you something no matter how trivial it is. And, and you have to be able to start over 
any number of times, not just once, any number of times. So I love that conversation uh, with you, Zach. Yeah, it was it was a great example of a non-technical problem, but it had so much technical stuff as well. So you're you're quite a technical guy, and uh, I learned so many things so far. Uh, so yeah, please uh, let's let's continue to our next question, which is I'm if you had imagined just a little bit here, because yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Inge- like if you're in the engineering role, you're not going to get things right the first time through. I'll just say that right now, like it. Don't expect positive results. You're going to get lucky, for sure. You're, you're going to have the optimal results, and you're going to get your results that you want, like the first time. It'll happen, you know, but don't expect those results all the time. It's just like doing that is, is accepting defeat. You're almost, you almost got to have like that, that predetermined attitude of like a lawyer, you know, where you're, you're offered rebuttal. And you you have to rechallenge, and if you don't have that drive to essentially reengage yourself and find out why, like there's a lot of things that that if you're not in, you know investigating or trying to figure out why it's like I, I wouldn't necessarily say engineering's like the the main role for you, but if you're really upset about bad results the first time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you need to swallow some truth pills, you know, at that point, and and you exactly. need to to really assess why you think that way and what is making you think that way. It's it's not that something is wrong with you, but it must be something in your psyche that you need to examine and come to peace with the fact that in in engineering you you will have to constantly have trial and error. And uh, I think you hit the nail right on the head with that, relating it to engineering. So yeah, sure, yeah. All right. So, Zach, if and I know you're a problem solver, but this question like assumes that you don't need to solve a problem. So if you had a magic wand to change one thing about how your job works or how your industry works or just the whole field, you know, manufacturing field, what would that be and why? (laughs) It's a good question because there's a lot of things I could wave a magic wand at. I'm sure everybody, you know, yeah. even like your daily life, you could wave a magic wand. And yeah. I kind of stated something earlier, like the engineer of a ship can never be captain. That, that whole idea mindset of, well, you're just an engineer, you know, you, you can never be an executive. Like you have to have that, that business knowledge. I think that's, I think that's, that's kind of true in some premise, but like, don't let it hold you back. Like you, you can still keep going and you can still be an engineer. You can buy the ship. You can be an engineer on that ship and still own the ship and also be the captain. But I think you, you offered some rebuttal to that too. She said like, like the ing- the captain has to know the same technicalities and the issues that the engineer knows. Otherwise, the captain can't give direction to the engineer or the engineer right. and the captain will basically end up in an argument match and one's going to end up either dead on the floor or thrown overboard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like within, within Ford Motor Company, we assign roles to multiple people. You've experienced it. And, you know, there's been some bloodletting. There's been some people laid off because they've, they've decided that 
that some people aren't needed and, and roles have changed. I think if you were still here at Ford Motor Company, you'd be a process engineer because we've based what Ford's done is they've simplified. They've gotten rid of the ergonomist and they basically went to like one standard PTME led group of, of ergonomics and, you know, they're like their own group and role. And I mean, you'd either end up there or you'd end up as a process engineer, but like it's, it's so crazy to me to see how sometimes as, as, as engineers, we are essentially muted. And if I could wave a magic wand, it'd be, essentially to, to open up the doors to anybody within Ford Motor Company to to have accessibility to that executive role. And you know granted that you do you, you do have the have the proper degree as as in the business knowledge but like at this point, it seems kind of kind of heartbreaking because I, I myself only have a bachelor's degree. And, you know, even today I thought about, you know, maybe I should pursue a master's because then that would basically take me a step further and I could end up as in like a manager role. But it would never get me to that, to that executive role. So you got to have that mindset from the start, you know, of where you want to be within a company. If you want to be an executive you know, take some business classes, you know, do that as your master's on top of like a bachelor's degree or something. But, but yeah, and to actually get rid of COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that's, that's a very special magic wand. Uh, if, if you had that. <clears throat> yeah. You, I think actually, you, uh, yeah. to actually make a endless supply of toilet paper and microchips. Yeah, I've been following following that bit of news that it's it's hurting all manufacturers. Uh, I mean, not just Ford, but and you hit uh, quite the nerve with that uh, with that degree thing because you know essentially that does not mean uh, like that piece of paper does not mean that you will be able to solve business problems. It just means that you took the time to to learn about business and 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 maybe an an engineer can do that uh, even without the degree and but. But that's how these credentials work. And unfortunately, that's how it is. But you you do need to navigate the corporate world with with the way you describe, which is to kind of choose your path in management or become a technical specialist like yourself. So yeah, hopefully one day uh, there, there are more technical people within the management committees that you know, analyze more or, or dig deeper more and go to the root, you know, perform root cause analysis, you know, before they take decisions. And yeah, oh, absolutely. Gosh, that, that reminds me. There's another lead engineer that I work with. His name's Paul Prusecki. And <laughs> one of our, uh, one of our LL2s, which is leadership level two, basically is reports out directly to our executive level. So we're talking like Jim, Jim Farley. And there was a meeting that was sent out the other day and, and it's like some God awful hour, like six 30 in the morning. And I, I basically asked, you know, another lead engineer, Hey, have you heard what this is about? And his response, I'm guessing it's another management rollout of another high level plan. <laughs> so, and I'm like, well, yeah. Uh, you know, his, his, my response to him was, well, I pretty much figured that out, you know, kind of like eye rolling at him. 
<laughs> and it, it's it's probably you know everybody's got news but it seems like you know somebody's got to send it out like a, as a blast email or have a meeting over something and if it's unknown nature and and something doesn't know about it like it's yeah like let the masses know but i i kind of already have an idea of what this meeting is about and here's the thing like we know that there was a toilet paper shortage we know that there's a chip shortage and these are like key things that you got to hone in on like when you're in the industry and you see something happening your response shouldn't be to lay down and place blame your response should be to act and react if you're not getting microchips like start making your own damn microchips at right. some point you you have the the technical basis behind you you have all the all the people that are there to ready to do it and this is something that i've seen with you know on on project apollo like that was project apollo was ford motor company's response to respirators ppe and and getting healthcare products to people that needed it during the pandemic and i'll tell you what like ford motor company sprang to action in like two weeks we were we had our first piece of equipment show up on like the third week. And you mean to tell me that you can you can start making respirators and you can start making face masks on week three, but you're gonna lay down and basically start pointing fingers and placing blame at like how far are we into this Sid? Probably like take month two. Yeah, yeah. This is no more than month two, I think. This is this is more than month two. Yeah. Like read the writing on the wall from the get-go and understand the issues that are coming up and you got to react like you got to be there and react within 72 hours like you see the shortage happening you have the manufacturing facilities and the infrastructure and everything to basically to get the ball rolling either you react or you you lay down and take it <laughs> that's how i see it yeah yeah and and it's interesting that I, I was reading an article from 2018 and 2019, which was very interesting in, in which some raw material or commodity and, and natural resources consultants were, were saying that, you know, mining capacity doesn't actually meet what the electric car makers are planning to use you know for things like lithium and cobalt and stuff like that and it was something that they said that hey you're gonna run into problems you know in 2022 or something and you know people were like you know yes but you know even that's gonna increase at the same level as the demand is and and maybe it did not you know and maybe they were right and but this literature was out there you know this literature was out there for people to see and 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 act on it so yeah what you're saying makes sense yeah yeah and i I honestly believe that our, our next electrical shift is going to go from batteries to probably small-scale reactors. It's just a, you know, just like my own little thought. Right. You know, I'm talking like reactors, like the size of an Nalgene bottle. Right, right. More, you know, more vertical integration, uh, the way it was during Henry Ford, right? He... He saw stuff like this happening. He saw, you know, shortages. A little tidbit for the audience is that he even made his own rubber plantation, you know, just so he could make tires, right? So <laughs> this is how he yep. used to think. Still owns it. <clears throat> yeah, very interesting comment on how 
we have to react or rather be proactive and and you know when when everything is probably clearly in front of you and and all of us kind of do that we we can clearly see things coming but we sometimes don't act so well that that was that was just you know the three questions that i sent you zach and and the fourth question was or the surprise fifth question rather was was something just fun as as a closing question which was if this was 2051 or uh, you know it was your grandchild in 2051 what would they see if they stepped into a factory like what kind of a factory like an automotive factory any like the factory of the future like what do you think how do you think we'll be manufacturing things what is the state of the industry in that era oh man i think you'll i think it'd be like walking walking into an apple store i think you're going to see like the the cleanliness and and like what you have going to don't get me wrong like gears gears are always going to be messy like they're always going to be oily i think nothing's going to change with machining i honestly think that you'll start to see advancements in in rapid prototyping to where you're going to have instead of you know die cast things you're going to have things that are rapidly um rapidly made but to be honest like die casting of aluminum especially with our transmission cases and the materials that they use it's pretty damn fast i don't think that you can rapid prototype something that fast um right but i think there's always going to be some some level of material removal from whatever's basically diecast so you're always going to have machining i i believe that machining has pretty much optimized to the point that you know they they're already using cemented diamond and and other types of of like composite type carbide tips to to remove material that tool changes are are so infrequent tool life is indefinite you're talking like tool changes every jeez like month. 10 years yeah yeah long long mm. periods of time you you'll see bearings and stuff wearing out before you see cutting tools wear out as far as assembly goes you're always going to need that that human to machine interface and you're always going to have to have that that operator knack and somebody hand starting a bolt. Oh really? Uh, you think so? Mhm. Hmm. Tell me. Do you honestly think automation can solve the the wire harness, the bulkhead wire harness? Right now it can't. <laughs> I I I've I've experienced it. So I I used to put my hands in there to you know to see the ergonomics and try and install it myself and and no it can't uh yeah but i i didn't always I, i can see wireless wireless sensors i can see the removal of wires altogether and have wireless sensors with uh like like recently there was a chip that was created that took a binary compound of diamond which is a type of crystal that creates its own energy and essentially it being implemented into a chip that has a half life of 28 years so on that note 
I think you could actually do wireless sensors, like exactly like what we have for the speed sensors and the transmission. You could essentially have a Wi-Fi enabled type receptor that would pick up the, the sensor output and process that into like an input card. I can see the, the removal of batteries at some point, cell phones, because the chips in and of themselves will have 28 years of, of battery life. They, they won't need anything to produce energy. But as far as like manufacturing and, and making things, I can seriously see like nuts and fasteners and everything still being needed because if you need to service something, you still got to take a bolt down. Super glue won't replace that. Epoxies are making a, a, a pretty big comeback, though. Like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, very, very interesting take. And you're the second person who mentioned that plants could be cleaner. And I do hope that, you know, humans are, are not still at plants and, you know, they, they don't need to come there. And, and uh, you know, for the audience, the speed sensors are these sensors that you, you know, place next to slots in the the case in which the input shaft of the transmission is is kept and it kind of meshes with the input shaft and measures the speed you know that's how you you come to know your speed and correct me wherever i'm i'm wrong zach and then it's like a hall effect sensor it just outputs rotation speed yep and to hold them there you know to, to connect them there you know you have this wire and to hold the wire as rigidly as it's possible, you have this wire harness. And the wire harness is, you know, it snakes its way around other components in in the transmission. And what Zach is referring to is how complicated that is to install. And it requires so much sensitivity with your fingers that, uh, you know, so somebody who is very big, even, even that person has difficulty actually placing this wire harness accurately inside. So let alone a robot, which is, you know, not, sensitive enough and and you know we just don't have the technology at the right cost to have that kind of finesse you know and that that massaging of that uh bendable harness so so that is what we're talking about and but yeah i could see the whole 5g movement mixed with like the these new technologies in 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 microsystems with infinite power essentially like what's this like the the most your service life of like a cell phone is probably like what 10 years so I mean, if you put, if you start talking about like removal of wires inside of a vehicle, you could, uh, you could power headlights, you could power, you know, gauge clusters, you could power lights. There's multiple things that you're talking about. Like, granted, you have a big enough chip. Now, most of these chips are, we're talking like on a small scale, like they require input power to, to do the computations and, and run the algorithms, but. Like most of these chips that they're starting to make that are that are like a composite diamond are essentially like they don't need power input to do what they gotta do. They just need a signal and then they, they do the rest of it all by themselves. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. No, I, I had not heard of uh the, the materials that you mentioned, self-powered materials, and I'll be sure to look that up. I, that sounds very, very fascinating. And it's essentially what you're saying. It's it's like the Iron Man like thing in his in his chest, right? It's it's self-powered and essentially eliminates the need of any kind of power source being connected from afar with wires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would essentially. I mean, you still have to. I think you still have to have like a high input voltage to start the engine. If you're still talking about ice ice engines, internal combustion. 
you know, that's going to take a large amount of battery power. But as far as computers go and, and, you know, turn on a signal to turn on a fan and you're still going to have a generator on board, like an alternator or something to create power too. But a lot of the power that's running to the chips is, is essentially going to get, get removed at some point. Yeah, that's, that's a big thing. Crystals, crystal power is, is actually something that's, that's been out there for a while and, and they're starting to make advancements in it. I, I read it in popular mechanics, actually. It's not something like kind of new invention. It's, it's been around for a while. Right. Right. And, and yeah, it just needs to be on the right location on that curve of adaption, right? It's, it's just not there yet, but Hey, this is 2051 we're talking about and, you know, hopefully a lot of these things that all of our guests have said will will be true and uh, make for cleaner, quieter, safer uh, factories. Yeah. So Could you imagine just putting a piece of equipment on a line, not having any IO output cards, anything else. It's everything's wireless. It would simplify assembly in so many, like in so many ways, like in yeah. unimaginable ways. You know, this the complications would be so less, you know, in transport, in any kind of logistics inside the plant and just in ergonomics everywhere. You're right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. They're even starting to send electricity over wavelength. Like they're starting to get rid of power lines. There's a town in Sweden that gets the majority of their power talking electricity over wavelength, like through the air without light. Nikola Tesla style. Yep. Cool. It's doable. You just got to have a problem solver mindset. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's that's true. Well, Zach, uh, I think this was one of the best episodes so far. I I think we went into like a variety of topics. Your problems were, were very fascinating. And I was working alongside you, but I didn't know all the nuances and, and I'm glad I know them now. And Oh, you ain't got them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure I, I haven't. And, you know, who knows? I, you, you'll probably be coming for another few times on this podcast. So I'd be very happy to have you again. So thank you so much, Zach, for, for talking to me and all those technical issues we had. Thank you for your patience and... Uh, giving me your time and i wish you and your family all the best and we'll chat again soon all right well yeah as long as the snow quits falling hopefully i'll be fishing this weekend sounds just amazing if you enjoyed this conversation please subscribe to the means of production podcast for more stories from people behind all the manufactured goods we use love and depend on this episode was made possible by Pashi, the operating system for manufacturing. Pashi unifies the entire production process for any product, encompassing operator instruction and data interpret interfaces, stage logic and parameter thresholding, machine interfacing and configuration, robot programming and coordination, and stage-to-stage production flow control into a single Pashi program. Check us out at pashi.com. And until we meet again, Have a fantastic day and take care. If you're still here, you can go ahead and listen to Zach talking about hunting turkeys and deer. Enjoy. (laughs) I'm hoping it's, yes, weather permitting. Oh, I got to get out. I forgot. Saturday's the opening of turkey season, so I have to go try to get me a turkey. That's going to be a new one.
I have a guy teaching me. Actually, you know, you always thought that I was like an outdoorsy kind of guy. I've never, ever hunted turkey in my life. And this is the first year where, like, I, I met a guy that I said, hey, you should come out turkey hunting with me. And, and I've been out deer hunting with him, and he sucks at it. <laughs> okay, this is not making sense because I know you've hunted deer. And how, how would it be? How would it be possible for a person to be, you know, have a turkey hunting be like more difficult than a deer hunting? I'm sure you can handle that. Everybody thinks that turkeys are like a really, really dumb bird. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they're not? I I didn't know that. I I thought they were dumb because there was this turkey that just came on the middle of the road where my wife was going to work and just sat in front of the front grill because it was warm on, on a highway and just sat there. (laughs) <laughs> well they don't know the vehicle <laughs> but to be honest like most guys that go turkey hunting i'll try to i'll try to lay this down for you but they go out into the woods and they have a crow call or like an owl call and turkeys will pretty much respond i i don't know if you've ever had the experience but you should try this once if you ever pull up next to a herd of, like, a, a gaggle, I, I don't know what they're called, like a flock of turkeys, roll down, <laughs> roll down your window and just yell at them. Just yell, get the hell out of the road or, or something, you know, because you'll, you'll be in your car. <laughs> right. The turkeys will gobble. Like, that, that's kind of their response. They they respond to, to common noises. So you get out in the woods and you, you blow as hard as you can into, like, this crow call. And you try to sound like a crow. And turkeys will naturally respond to that as like, just like a normal sound. And and they'll actually gobble out loud. And, or, or you could do the same with like an owl. You could try to sound like an owl and they'll do the same thing. But in the morning, like turkeys are just real vocal. And the guy that I've, I've been deer hunting with, he, he hasn't shot a deer in like the last two years I've been with him. And he's, he's probably just, you know, all of our fault. We put him in a bad spot or something, or he's napping midday when the deer, <laughs> when the deer come by or he, he just hasn't shot one, but he's like a real avid turkey hunter. And he actually got a turkey last year and he's like, yeah, turkeys are a real dumb bird, Zach, like. But I'll tell you what, as soon as you put like camouflage on and try to blend in, Turkeys have the sight and hearing of a deer that has smell. So you like you can't sneak up on a turkey very easily. And they're pretty like during their mating season, they're they're pretty alert. And it's hard to actually like it people try so hard to get to these birds and it's there's like some ethics too. Like you can't you can't shoot a turkey out of a tree if he's roosting. Like it's like just cheating. Right, right. And I'll, like most of the hunters won't do it. And I won't do it because there's there's ethics involved. You know, I believe in fair chase. And so for all it's worth, I'll probably be out there in the woods trying to sound like a sexy hen, you know, trying to attack a <laughs> turkey. And I'm going to completely fail at it. <laughs> but... All this do because I can always go to the grocery store and just flip the 20 bucks and buy a turkey. But I choose to go the route of spending hundreds of dollars in equipment and trying to attract a turkey to within 20 yards so I can shoot it in the face. <laughs> yep, that, that, that's Zach. And by the way, I would pay to hear you sound like a sexy hen. So, yeah. <laughs> 
put uh, it as a put it as a you know like a end after the end credits in the in the podcast maybe <laughs> i'll get on that my turkey calling sucks right now <laughs> no this sounds absolutely fun and uh, it sounds very zach so uh, yeah i hope you have a lot of fun in that and you get some turkeys and uh, you have a good meal out of it and uh, yeah happy hunting thanks sid thanks for inviting me this was a good experience i enjoyed it glad you enjoyed it zach i wish uh, and again i wish uh, you and your family all the best stay safe and uh, i'll see you soon yeah you as well sid take care of that baby they grow so fast man i know